Hi again, everyone, or anyone really, and thanks for listening to episode two of the Pocket Dump podcast on the Rogue Intel Network. This is where I will take you inside how people's minds work by examining what they use to do that work. I'm Matt Rollins, your host and guide, as we talk about all the equipment people just can't be without. Now, I'm a big fan of the idea that people are what they do. Everybody out there has a certain amount of stuff they simply have to have with them every day. Trusty pen, hand sanitizer, old burned up spoon, I'm not here to judge. If you dump your pockets for me, I can tell you about who you are. This isn't tea leaves. I'm not going to make generalizations like if you don't carry an iPhone, you are a Luddite. I am going to ask the questions and hear from the folks with the gear. As an example, the particular set of pockets that we are dumping today contain a handgun. Not literally in the pocket, because that's a terrible idea. If guns bother you, don't turn the podcast off. On the one hand, there's a preview of an awesome flashlight, there's a belt buckle wallet in this episode's shiny, EDC style this time out is about footwear, but if on the other hand, you hate guns, listen to my conversation with the gunsmith and see if that changes your mind. This is how we get to know people on the show, by asking them what they have on them, what they keep close by, and what they need in order to interact with the world. If I do it right, we all learn a lot. Of course, as always, this disclaimer. If you think I'm doing this show because I love gear, you are not wrong. I have spent a ton of time this week finding gear to get into your ear holes just to keep you on that quest for the perfect kit. Last week, I brought up my three levels of manufacturing while talking to Duff about his Kershaw brand knife. That knife is produced overseas for an American company and to that company's specifications. Is a Kershaw not as good as a buck knife, which is made here in the U.S.? That's a value proposition that we all have to think about every time we make a purchase, because in most cases, American-made products cost significantly more than the overseas stuff. But it might be worth it on quality grounds, or on moral ones. So, right up front in the manifesto, I thought I would just say that I try to buy American stuff, because of keeping jobs here and quality, but I go a step farther, and I look for the stuff nobody else has. Last week's Tentaclip is available on Machine13Tools.com, and this week in Shiny is a Canadian firm reinventing the belt, or the wallet, or both. Now, as manufacturing and prototyping are done differently these days, a lot of people are turning sketches into reality that just couldn't do it before. And that's awesome. I want everything custom. I can't afford everything custom, however, but it's to each of us to decide where to spend and where to save. Some of us include flashlights in our EDC. In more than one of my former lives, a flashlight was vital work equipment. And last week, Duff explained that he uses his flashlight all of the time. He has an LED flashlight that uses three AAA batteries and a little drum thingy to up the voltage. It's small and it works okay, but it's not the output that real flashlight nerds like. I've always called myself a geek and not a nerd, because nerds are smart. I like stuff, but I don't learn too much about it. But then, I started a podcast about all of this stuff, and I am learning it now. 
For this show, I have to embrace my geekery and look around for stuff to bring you that you might not have already heard about. And this week, I discovered that the Illumination Gods had smiled on the EDC community with the Titan, a new light from Surefire. This thing puts out 125 lumens from one AAA battery, and included in the package is a rechargeable NIMH cell. So, this uses one rechargeable battery and can use store-bought batteries as replacements, and the whole thing weighs an ounce. One ounce. Three inches long and keyring mountable, which is great for me because I carry a Phoenix E05 right now, in purple by the way, because I like purple, which is actually even smaller than the Surefire, but has a maximum output of 45 minutes at 85 lumens. And the Surefire can go for an hour. An hour doesn't sound like a long time, but that's shining as much light as you could need to bring daylight to dark places. And the Surefire will also run for eight and a half hours at a much more night vision friendly 15 lumens. Just like with everything else, we are juggling that size, weight, performance, price matrix, and here is where that dreaded MSRP shows up again, and this thing costs 60 bucks. So I know what you're thinking. Just get an $8 one from the Home Depot, or do like Matt did and get the $20 Phoenix. But if you listened to me at all, you'll understand that the money that you spend on anything is an investment on not needing to replace it so soon. If you want to see it, the link to the Surefire Titan is, of course, on our show notes. Let's move on. This time around, we're going in a more dangerous direction. The pockets we're dumping this week belong to a professional gunsmith from Arizona, so we will be talking about guns, firearms, the ratchet, smoke wagons, and other deadly weapons. Chris's livelihood is the sales and service of firearms, so while we are not going to debate gun control on this show, hopefully ever, just accept that this is a pro-gun version of the Pocket Dump Podcast, PDPC for short. Christopher was quite game to help out, and really eager to talk about his gear in a judgment-free zone like this. We had a great conversation that went all the way from lip balm to shoulder holsters, and we talk about Chris's personal pacifism. I'll be back in half an hour to keep talking your ear off. As a note, it was getting quite late on the East Coast when we wrapped this up, and I forgot to review the junk drawer and wishing tree sections at the close of the interview, but they are in there if you listen. And as always, they'll be listed in the show notes. So, Chris, are you ready for the eight basic questions? Sure. Okay, these are really quick. You don't have to expound. We can get to them later. Short answer versions of these questions. Do you carry a gun? Yes. Do you carry a knife? Yes. Do you carry a bag? No. Do you carry a flashlight? Yes. Do you carry a multi-tool? No. What is the total weight of all that you carry? Uh, just shy of seven pounds. What is the last item you used? Knife. Did you cram for this interview? And that means, did you get something to be more impressive when you were interviewed? Did you go out and buy something for this? Oh, hell no. Fair enough. Uh, I And I believe you, because I know that you're a dedicated carrier. So uh, let's start because our preview this week was a flashlight. A lot of our listeners are probably still into the flashlight area, and they remember things like lumens and stuff right now. So we're going to talk about what light you carry. That is a... Surefire Z2X, is that correct? Correct. Uses two 123 cells? Yes. So you have the special little batteries in a drawer somewhere? Uh, I got about 
three dozen of them in the fridge? Uh, you keep them in the fridge. Uh, and uh, if I'm reading this right, that's 320 lumens maximum output. Oh, yeah, that's the Surefire rating. That's the Surefire rating. Have you seen other ratings? Uh, Surefire, uh, unlike most manufacturers, if they say 320, you would expect to see absolutely minimum that. A lot of the Chinese lights are rated at their theoretical. So 320 Surefire lumens can be a lot brighter than uh, other lights' actual output. So, so rated lumens versus actual lumens. And yeah. you are confirming for me that Surefires are made in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, I believe they are entirely made in the U.S. Earlier in the show, uh, I did speak briefly about my opinion that there are three levels of manufacture. U.S.-made manufacture, manufacture overseas for U.S. companies, and then knockoffs. Yeah, that'd be a fair way to put it. I'm not saying automatically that American stuff is better, but generally, if you can call the guy who made the thing, uh, he's going to have his game up, like Buck and, uh, in this case, Shorefire. Also, Spyderco. Um, and then I finally have a Spyderco in my own carry, but it's made in Japan. Yeah. Well, yeah, most of your knife manufacturers, other than small shops, are all going to have multiple levels. I think even Benchmade's got various levels of imported knives and then U.S.-made knives, and you can usually tell the difference by the uh, number of hundreds of dollars in the price tag. Both of your knives, and I don't know if you're doing this on purpose, are Columbia River Knife and Tool knives, CRKTs? Yeah. Are any of the, are either or any of those made here in the States? No, I believe they're both imported. It doesn't say, but I would be profoundly surprised for the price I paid for them if they're U.S.-made. I would presume that they're Chinese-made. You would presume that they're Chinese or overseas-produced. Again, this is Columbia River, someone you can get on the phone, but made overseas to keep those prices down. Yeah. They're pretty similar. I've looked them up. So even their uh, their serial numbers on the website are only off by six digits. It's the 2900 and the 2906. Yeah, they're both uh, Williams designs, and I I like the uh, General Blade design. So so you have the three-and-a-half-inchy version? The 2900. Correct. Which is called the Hi-Ho. Correct. And it is nice and pointy. Yeah. It's a, what they call a classic style Tonto, I think. And then in the same general outline, the 2906, which you have listed it coming in 6.35 ounces, and that's a four and a half inch bladed version of the same thing. Yes. So one of those is for your everyday cutting tasks, and one of those is for extraordinary cutting tasks. I carry the big one right-handed and the smaller one left-handed. I try to use the, the small one for work tasks, but that doesn't always work out to be that way. So it's whatever knife comes out of the pocket. They're front pockets or back pockets, or one of each? Uh, front pockets. I, I've They're... never been able to carry knives in back pockets. I lose them all the time. Most of the time uh, the... in the couch cushions, fortunately enough, but uh, yeah, I've never been comfortable with that. And uh, do you have the uh, special serrations on either one of them? No, a straight, plain edge. They come with not the normal or standard serrated edges. They come with VEF serrations, bigger, deeper, kind of swoopier serrations. Yeah, no, those are by far my favorite serrations. I have a older uh, CRKT called, the, I believe it was an Igniter, and that was uh, my carry knife for a while before these. And they're fantastic, but they have all the drawbacks that serrations normally have as far as keeping them sharp and in the correct shape and all that kind of stuff. And both of these knives use the locks lever locks spelled with a w 
Yeah, it's a uh, secondary manual lock. The small one is a liner locker, and the big one is uh, a frame lock. And the uh, locks lever sneaks in behind that to prevent that from getting pushed out of the way of the blade. So you can uh, effectively lock the blade open. Several years ago, I had a, one of the smaller M16 variations that had an auto locks in it, which was annoying because I basically couldn't close the knife again with one hand uh, because that lock popped open and everything was spring-loaded. So didn't care for those, but these, if you want to lock the blade, you can. Otherwise, I, I just generally ignore them. And you like the uh, disc open that they have. Yeah, that's actually one of my favorites for uh, for knives. Uh, the big knife that I actually flip open, it's got enough inertia in the blade that it's it's really simple to flip. Okay, but it doesn't have a it doesn't have a back flipper. No. You just you kinda hit the disc and give it some Oh uh, no, it's just entirely inertia based. I just hold the knife by the base and flick it open. Oh, okay. So the blade is heavy enough that it'll actually in your case swing open. Yeah, in the uh mm-hmm. the twenty nine oh six. And the uh twenty nine hundred is a semi auto or assisted open, so that, you just have to get it started. All right. The 2906 has a name, yes? Yeah, it's a Otanashi no Ken. Any idea what that means? Yeah, I looked it up once, but uh, <laughs> not off the top of my head. I tried to find it, and I will look again, and if I can find it before uh, airtime of the show, I'll let everybody know. The one thing that surprised me when you did your dump for me more than anything was at 0.35 ounces, you carry Burt's Bees lip balm. Yeah. So, uh, big scary gunsmith like you, two knives, handgun, not a lot of other stuff. Don't carry a multi-tool, not a, not a whole lot in these pockets. And lip balm. Is that a function of the desert? Where did you get in that habit? Uh, generally, you just need lip balm. And uh, way back when, somebody gave me some Burt's Bees, and it is better than anything else. It better be, because it costs, like, six times as much, but uh, there's really just no comparison, so uh, I've had to keep continue buying it since then. That is an interesting endorsement. <laughs> like, I, I didn't think you'd be 100% all in on a lip balm brand. You know, if you, like, the macho thing to say would be, I don't know, that's the stuff that I had, or whatever. But you're like, nope, that stuff was better, I'm gonna go buy it, I'm gonna keep buying yeah, it. Yeah, you gotta buy it in the uh, fruits and nuts hippie aisle at the uh, fries or whatnot. It's not in the regular medicine section. Yeah, but Arizona hippies aren't like California hippies. Well, they're almost exactly like California hippies. <laughs> Most of them come from there. <laughs> so Arizona hippies are akin to the California hippies. Yes. But they've moved to a, a state that is far more gun-friendly. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure why. But, you know, it's in, in, the, in our store here. And, you know, I work at a gun store. You see a really large mix of people. You know, you have the people you would classically expect to see at a gun store, and you also have uh, people that are just absolutely the uh, Earth Mother-style hippies, dreadlocks and, you know, handmade sandals and all that kind of stuff. They they all buy guns. Well, it's the desert. It's dangerous out there. I think statistically you'd say that it's actually less dangerous here than a lot of other places. I just think that people here realize that they're going to be responsible for themselves more often than not, just because of the amount of open space. Now, I don't know what the, we're in Avapai County, I don't know what our sheriff's department has on it as far as working every shift, but I, I know that each guy has a couple hundred square miles, typically, that he's responsible for. So if you're outside of townships, you're going to be, you know, waiting a while when you need help. When I lived in Maine, the joke was that the rural state troopers out in the woods, you'd get a 911 call that a woman had gone into labor, 
and you would get to her house and the kid would be playing catch on the front lawn. <laughs> uh, so wallet, no surprise there. Uh, you carry a wallet. Everything is in, it's a leather wallet. Uh, yeah, it's an old, I think it's a Dockers trifold, which isn't a design that I particularly care for, but it was a gift and I've been carrying it for a long time and I don't want to break in a new holster or a uh, wallet. So I don't like leather when it's new. And you carry your keys on a chain so that nothing gets dropped? Yeah, there's uh, house keys and work keys. Uh, car keys I carry on a separate group. So if I have to leave the car somewhere or trade cars with somebody, I can just give them the car key without having to disconnect anything. Okay, so it's not a big, like, uh, remote control car key. It's just you keep your car keys separate? Yep. Although I don't have a Chevy, uh, I started doing that when I heard that ignitions were falling out on the Chevys. <laughs> I took my car keys off of everything because I was like, well, if it happened to that, it could theoretically happen to anything. And then you start looking around and suddenly realize that people carry really a lot of keys. So I have the thing that actually opens my house and starts my car. And then I have the other thing that is my key ring, which is really just where I keep all my guyvery stuff, like my lighter and my flashlight and things like that. Uh, your flashlight is not key ring mountable, though. It's a little bit bigger. Yeah. Uh, for most part, I buy pants that have the, uh, I don't know what the hell the pocket's for originally, but it's on your thigh, on the kind of just aft the center line on your leg, the slash pocket. They're like uh, carpenter pants and shorts, work shorts. Sure. Have them all the time. For that rulery uh, thingy that carpenters use. Yeah, that's generally where I keep it. So opposite the hammer loop, the tool pocket. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's got a clip? No, it stays in there. Oh, so that doesn't bounce loose. No, it's far enough down that it just it stays put, and I think it's because it's uh, below center line as well, so mm -hmm. you're just barely sitting on it if you're sitting in a chair that has a support down there, so it doesn't move around much. And did you choose that light because it is weapon-mountable? Like, is that sometimes mounted to a gun for you, or it's just the best light you could get your hands on? No, it's, it's just a handheld mm -hmm. light. Someone gave me my first high-end uh, flashlight that I'd ever owned uh, was an original Surefire Z, which is the original variation of this. Uh, almost identical external shape and everything. Incandescent bulb, still two CR123s, and uh, like 65 lumens output. This one is actually so old that while the box was marked Surefire, the uh, end cap was still marked Laser Devices, which is the original company name for them. And uh, I like that design. It's the design that the FBI issues. Uh, it's got a, an integral boss to hold it and instead of holding it like a hammer uh you hold it through your hand between your middle finger and ring finger and uh you press the tail cap with your thumb and then you can still cup your hand your off hand uh, around your your firearm to use it like that and i find that's better generally than the other types of handheld support for lights so even your flashlight of choice has the handgun thought about during it you're always considering uh, what happens when you have to go to guns yeah absolutely and, and you re fairly recently switched handguns out you went from what and to what oh uh, i've been carrying a uh, glock of some kind for as long as i've carried since i've been out in arizona uh but the last four or five years has been a glock 19 uh, the uh, compact size nine millimeter and now what is it i uh, recently switched to a uh, full-size cz uh 75b and it's a specifically a retro edition, which is just like a 75B, but it has some superficial changes to make it uh, more uh, resemble the original iteration of the 75. Uh, so the uh, what are the improvements on the Model B? The Model B, 
uh, specifically refers to the firing pin block in the uh, modern guns. It's a uh, passive firing pin block. It locks the firing pin from movement unless the trigger is uh, fully depressed. And uh, this is a pretty common feature in almost all your modern guns. Uh, that is an absolute common feature for any, any modern gun. I can't imagine somebody designing a new original design and not incorporate one. So uh, it was retrofitted onto the design of the CZ-75, which is from Correct. Czechoslovakia originally, yes? Yes, and is a uh, 70s, early to mid-70s design. So yours has the block, the letter B for block, or B just for next generation, second iteration? Yeah, I don't I don't know what the, the meaning is, other than I just assume that it's the versus an A, which would be the original model. Sure. And is an all-metal, uh, 9mm combat handgun. Uh, it's a full-size all-steel. All-steel. Yeah, so with a 16 plus 1 rounds, it's uh, right at 43 ounces. 43 ounces total weight. That's about double what you had with the Glock 19. Glock 19 was, it's been a while since I measured it, but I was, believe it was 32 or 33 ounces with uh, 15 plus 1 rounds. Okay, so an extra pound. Yeah, close to. And worth the switch. Yeah, the switch was not born out of any necessity. Just my desire to do something different after a decade of shooting the same kind of guns and to get into something that's more something that you would expect a gunsmith to be carrying. Uh, something you expected a gunsmith to carry. So you chose it for kind of uniqueness. Did that prove to be challenging with getting uh, all the accessories for it? You have listed uh, like a mag keeper and a very specific inside the waistband holder from a company called Alien Gear. Uh, the holster was was difficult. Uh, the magazines, uh, most of your nine uh, millimeter double stack magazines in basic geometry, uh, Browning high power magazines. So the mag pouches for one work for all of them. So that was not difficult to get a mag pouch for at all. Uh, finding people who are making inside the waistband holsters for a uh, CZ seventy five was uh, difficult. I've been using uh, CompTAC for my uh, previous holsters. What started to this is that, you know, I had bought the CZ and I was looking for a holster. And then uh, my uh, CompTAC, I had been carrying on a Spartan for five years. Now, I, I don't begrudge CompTAC anything. I mean, they it was five years of nearly everyday carry. So the fact that the Kydex shell finally cracked, at that point, that's reached its service life. I, I don't hold anything against them. But the fact is that I had a first generation Spartan. You couldn't buy replacement shells anymore. Uh, both these holsters are what they call a hybrid design. They have a uh, leather on the piece on the backside and a Kydex half shell on the outside. So that keeps the uh, that keeps the throat of it open when you draw the gun. Correct. Whereas a leather holster collapses like a pocket. Yeah, and you can have reinforced leather, but that is never going to be really as stiff unless they put a steel piece in it, and then you end up having a, a considerably thicker area around the mouth than you would otherwise. So yeah, it does not collapse. Uh, it has about the same uh, footprint as the uh, pancake-style leather holsters, which uh, by their design can't be reinforced. They're a very comfortable holster design, but they do collapse when you draw the gun from them. The hybrid designs have, have two things going for them. First of all is cost. Uh, by the fact that they're not leather and they're not having to be stitched and worked like leather, they cost less to produce. And secondly, within a manufacturer, you can uh, generally exchange the, the half shells to various guns. 
the, the holster I have for CZ-75 right now, I can change it to a holster for a Glock 19, a Glock 17, Beretta 92, you know, whatever I want in the future. It unscrews off of little, uh, like, grommet holes? Yeah, it's got four uh, screws retaining the two halves. By doing that, it gives you some versatility. That is not a selling point for me, but it is for a lot of other people because a lot of people switch guns more often than I do. And even when I switch the gun, I have complete carry sets for each gun that I carry. Actually, I have two complete carry sets for a Glock 19 because I replaced the broken contact with an alien gear as well. And I still have my older Comtac, which is a CTAC, which is an all-Kydex holster for a second gun, and I have magazine pouches for them. I have basically three complete, ready-to-go-at-any-time carry setups. Strong side inside the waistband? That's how you have always carried? Yeah, I, I like inside the waistband. Uh, it conceals better. It protects the gun somewhat. A lot of people like belt-mounted slide holsters. Covers about the center portion of the gun and the front portion of the slide it sticks out. Uh, I think Walker, Texas Ranger, always carried one with that silver Inox Beretta that he had. And I never liked those because, I mean, that's your most fragile piece of a firearm is your front sight. And that's also your most important <laughs> when it comes to using it. So I always like to keep that well protected. So I got generally have a layer of denim and a layer of Kydex protecting the front sight when I carry a gun. What are the other options for carrying a handgun? That are reasonable. You talked about the uh, the outside, the pants, which exposes more of the gun. And uh, in your opinion, and you're not unlearned opinion, I'm sure you've repaired guns that have been bumped into things from weird carry positions. Yeah, I mean, if you have a full profile holster, it'll still protect the front sight more than adequately. Uh, but then the other reason I prefer it inside the waistband is one, it does hold it closer to the body. So if you're working around the area, I work around machinery, uh, and the rear sight is exposed, you're not going to be bumping that sight and the gun in general on stuff because it's tighter to your body and inside the waistband holster. Uh, even a, a outside the waistband holster that tucks the gun tight to you as possible is still going to be probably a quarter to three-eighths of an inch farther out. And, you know, it's just going to expose it to more environment and then the other part is about more concealability a shirt on me only has to go past my belt line to conceal my gun completely if i have an outside the waistband holster it's got to go past the muzzle you know that's a good five inch difference and as you move around uh you raise your arms over your head to do something that extra length uh, becomes more important if you are truly concerned about keeping and you know maintaining a concealed weapon. You know, the less you care about it, and less concerned you are about it being concealed, that's the uh, you know you can worry less about those. But but I conceal. And you know, I I live in Arizona, so we have constitutional carry for concealed weapons. We have legal open carry everywhere. I can open carry if I wanted to. Uh, but I always considered the first part of weapon retention to be not telling people I don't know that I have a gun. That sounds logical enough in this conversation. You can't steal what you don't know is there. Exactly. For any real law enforcement endeavor now, they're using at least some level of a retention holster that has uh, you know some kind of mechanism that locks the gun into the holster, and that's because that gun is obviously there to anybody. Law enforcement, they don't always get the option of not being crowded by people. It's, it's easy to say that you maintain your your safe distance from people at all time, but that's 
it's not an option if you have to wrestle somebody. <laughs> so everybody knows that gun's there. So it's on them to have a more difficult draw by means of one or, in most cases, uh, multiple mechanisms that prevent the gun from being drawn just by simply pulling it out of the holster. And that's a trade-off that you make is less retention mechanism for more discretion on an inside-the-waistband holster. Correct. I've tried to find a, a thumb break inside the waistband holster, talked to guys that claim to be custom holster makers, and I understand that a custom holster, I could be paying three, $400. It was something that I was willing to go out, am willing to go out to do, and I, I have not found anybody that would take that on at this point, and I'm not certain why, because thumb break holsters were, you know, that was the, your status quo for retention for the longest time. And there mm -hmm. is not so much that I don't want that for... Because I'm worried about somebody grabbing a gun, but as somebody who carries all the time, if I'm mm -hmm. hiking, uh, and hiking in Arizona a lot of times involves going over rocks and going back down the other side, uh, the downside of retention or the uh, hybrid style holsters is that they really don't have great retention. They basically have a friction fit, and then of course the pressure of the belt being over the gun as well keeps it in place. Uh, it's never moved around on me in any kind of normal situation, but, you know, sliding down a rock, it would be easy enough for the butt to get caught and then it's going to get pulled right out of your holster because there's not going to be anything there to stop that from happening. Have you uh, had a gun come loose? I've never lost one, but I'm, you know, conscious of, of what I'm doing without... You know, I'm comfortable with the gun. I've been carrying for so long that the one or two days a year that I'm forced by uh, the places that I'm going to not carry a gun at all, I, I notice the absence that day far more than I notice the presence uh, the other 360 days that plus that I do carry the gun. And have you ever uh, and, uh, uh, experimented personally with uh, shoulder holsters? Or other carrying types? Uh, I tried to get a... I think it's a Under Armour shirt that has a holster in it. Uh, for a very small gun. But I found that to be uh, not a workable solution. Uh, to hold the gun in place and not sag, the shirt had to be so unbelievably tight. I mean, I ordered a size smaller than their fit size set for me and the gun, the weight of a, a gun. And this was a, I tried both a, a car PM9 and a Caltech P32. The weight of either of them would, would make the, the shirt sag visibly on the side. And then you're just wearing an incredibly tight, itchy setup that I just, I could not ever stand. <laughs> and, uh, but you never went with like a, a Galco Miami classic big leather vest type rig. No, uh, I've considered getting one. Uh, generally, that would be like a wintertime only thing. I, I wouldn't be able to wear it most of the, the year in Arizona just because of how I dress. I uh, get on other people for saying that uh, I can't carry a gun because I can't conceal it the way I dress. Um, and if you really wanted to carry a gun, you would change the way you dress. I mean, I'm carrying a full-size service gun every single day. And when... I'm talking to a customer or something about carry guns, and I tell them that, you know, you can carry a gun if you dress appropriate and with a holster. Most of them act surprised when I tell them I'm carrying while I'm talking to them because they, they just don't see it. 
That said, I look around all the time, just as a, a pastime, to see if I can spot guns on people in public in general. And it's, it's amazing how often people don't see guns on other people open carrying, let alone carrying concealed. Well, what you're saying is that um, because you're attuned to what you're looking for, you see guns in a lot of places that people just aren't reacting to them at all. No one at the Starbucks is panicking, and there's like three armed men in there. They're not panicking, not because a gun's a reason to panic, but for the most part, they don't even notice, you know. And most people realize this. A person is not threatening or dangerous because of what they have. It's because of how they act. Except for a couple people that have an obvious political agenda, uh, calling out people just for open carrying a gun is just its ridiculous. They rather cause an issue for somebody that's just carrying a gun and they don't like that idea. But, you know, they're not overtly threatening anybody. You can have somebody that's unarmed that's a hell of a lot scary and a lot more dangerous than somebody that's, you know, minding their own business and obeying the law. And, of course, that person will also be helpful when you run across one of those people that's just crazy or high or high and crazy. So you are for the open carry folk, like those guys who got photographed in Texas at a Chipotle? Well, I, I think that if you can't open carry a gun, you're being denied the constitutional right to keep and bear arms. Uh, you know, the whole purpose and context of that amendment is to have firearms with you. Open carry Texas is kind of a goofy backwards protest. The fact that uh, in Texas, you cannot open carry a handgun, but you can legally open carry a rifle. And they've been working hard and are, at this point, very nearly successful at getting the open carry of handguns passed. So just to review, Texas, the land of the six-shooter, the six-shooter is not allowed. Uh, well, you keep it concealed. And they have a strict, at least theoretically, a strict punishment for guns printing and being flashed by movement. Whereas in Arizona... Well, at this point, uh, for years we had concealed carry with a permanent open carry available to anyone. Last several years we've had constitutional carry as well, which is that anybody that can legally possess a gun can uh, concealed carry a gun as well. It's a freedom from worrying about your gun in the fact that if you end up to actually be in a position where you got to get down and lift a heavy box or something, to do that correctly, you're gonna, your gun's going to print. There, there's just no, unless you're wearing a suit jacket or something there's and you unbutton it, there's just no way you're not going to print in that kind of a movement. And to have a law that says that you can conceal carry, but if you do that and the law enforcement have to see you're going to get a ticket or some other you know, repercussion, is just nonsense. You, you don't have your rights to the extent that they're meant to be there if you can't open carry a gun. Now, like I said, I generally do not open carry a gun because... It adds a layer of other concerns as far as retention, first and foremost, that I don't want to get involved with. I, I work and practice my abilities, and I, I'm not by any means the uh, best gunman in the world, but in the situation that I have to actually draw a gun, I want the gun to be uh, as much as a surprise to the other party as possible the moment it comes out. Because the last thing I actually want to do is shoot somebody. Now, I'm completely prepared to do so. But I understand the uh, legal realities that you can face a uh, long, arduous uh, battle. Thankfully, in Arizona, we have other legal protections uh, in most cases. You are a uh, standard ground state, is that correct? A standard ground, and also I believe we have state laws protecting us in the instance that it is ruled a justifiable use of deadly force uh, that prevents uh, wrongful death suits and the like against you as well. 
And uh, that's an important factor because uh, there are still many states where you can legally and justifiably defend yourself. You know, everybody involved, the cops investigate and they say there's no problem. And then, you know, some, some scumbag's family is suing you and trying to get your house and your savings. Uh, it's interesting. You are in a one of the most gun-friendly states, uh, probably top five. Yeah, I would say top five. Weird rule versus op- open carry notwithstanding, Texas is, is still fairly hard to beat. Uh, Florida is fairly good. And then you have, say, like Utah and Wyoming or some of the other very sparsely populated states don't have a, a lot of regulation beyond federal law. And that's what you have here in Arizona is that as far as gun legalities, there's nothing beyond uh, what's in the federal law. And then uh, in other states in our nation, there is the crime of brandishment. Correct. Drawing a gun and not killing someone with it is actually more illegal than killing someone with it. Correct. And Arizona, I believe, had that for a long time and still does to a certain extent. There's a a context to it. Uh, But for the most part, my theory as far as using a gun in the hope of bluffing somebody, uh, that should never be your goal. Uh, and the reason for that is that modern medicine is too good. You got too many people around that have been shot before, and they don't think it's any big deal. You don't believe that just showing a gun might not be enough of a deterrent in a particular situation? I, I do not plan or train to draw my gun in the intent to uh, get somebody to back down. Uh, by the time that I'm drawing, it'll be a situation where uh, the use of deadly force will be justified. And that person will have one and a half to two and a half seconds to change their mind, you know, as I draw. But that's that's going to be the opportunity they get. There's not going to be no warning shots, no threats, no... And that's in defense of myself. Now, if somebody else is beating up somebody else, you know, a third party, and I'm defending them, you might have to use the threat of deadly force. You run into the situation of, well, do you you can either start wrestling that guy, you know, to get him off of that person, or you can threaten him with deadly force. And all those options, you know, have their, their pluses and minuses. Once you go hand-to-hand with somebody, uh, it's really hard to make the case to using deadly force again. So if you start wrestling with somebody and losing, the option of shooting them at that point is basically out the window legally in almost all situations. That's not something that I personally want to get into. My feeling also is that I make my living with my hands, so I'd rather not break them on somebody's face. But you also make your living selling guns. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's really secondary in this consideration. If I was a cabinet maker or, uh, you know, anything else where I needed my fine motor skills like I do in gunsmithing, I, you know, why should I risk them to, to threaten somebody else or to to fight my way out of something despite what uh many think from the way i talk i'm largely a uh, pacifist i don't go go out into the world looking for options opportunities to use violence i wouldn't say the violent doesn't solve problems because it most certainly historically does historical president that's been proven over and over again historically (laughs) i can prove that violence does in fact solve problems maybe not the most politically correct answer no uh we we could go case by case through the stuff that's been in the news, but I am going to let you go. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, it's been educational, and if everybody, the listeners, both of them, uh, want to hear you, uh, we will have you back on, and we'll maybe ask you some more questions about uh, guns and ammo. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for being on. No, thank you for having me. Now, before you all start complaining, that was the cut-down version of that interview. 
And there are B-sides, bonus tracks that will be available on RogueIntel.com for all Access members. More depth about firing pin blocks and how Chris feels about Glock handguns and his opinion on multi-caliber weapons is in there. And it's all for you guys. If you go to RogueIntel.com slash support and set up your membership to become an all-access member of the network. Jargon for this week is print, which we mentioned a couple times in that interview. Print. When people who carry guns say, it prints, they mean that you can see the outline of it through a shirt, or that the gun bulge is obvious through a jacket. The goal is not to print. Because unlike junior high, a strategically placed math textbook won't really help. Most people carry on the waist either on the side where they'd pull a gun, or sometimes right in the middle of the back. If you think that all you have to do is tuck a gun into your pants at the belt line, like in the movies, I'd ask you to leave now. So very much of what Hollywood does with guns is so very wrong, and one of those things is letting the good guys or the bad guys just tuck a gun right into the bathing suit area and go for a jog. Chris said, He's so comfortable at this point carrying a gun that when the situation doesn't allow for it, he feels the absence far more than he notices his gun's presence when it's there. So the next time you watch a cop show on the telly, see if the cops are wearing their guns in every single scene. I guarantee they are not. And I think that changes things just a little. And the reason they are not? Because the guns would print on all that expensive wardrobe. So that's your jargon for this week. Now for our second ever EDC style section, we're going to be talking about flip-flops. On the Every Daily, we each in our own way try to be ready to meet the world on our own terms. One thing we here in the first world need is foot protection, and the most minimal form of that is the flip-flop, or the thong sandal. When I was learning to be a grown-up, no one told me that the flip-flop is for the beach, skeevy showers, and hot driveways. Not wet driveways, but that's a separate lesson. Fall on your ass once and you'll understand. It was socially acceptable in the first decade of the 2000s to wear flip-flops with jeans and a dress shirt. Pictures of me like this will eventually be that picture of your dad in a sky-blue ruffle tuxedo, or maybe that tab-collar Nero jacket of you from your 90s prom. From the point of view of the modern MacGyver type, wearing a shoe that doesn't allow for climbing or running or even effective backpedaling is a no. So guys, gals too in fact. I'm not saying don't wear sandals. I'm saying that thong sandals, as well as the soccer slide, is limited to situations you would do barefooted, but for some reason don't. That leaves the affectionately named Air Jesus ankle strappy type, these are often found with a ton more Velcro than is really necessary, or the shoes that rocks can get in, like Keens and Crocs and stuff like that. Each of those has their merits. I have a pair of rope sandals, made here in the U.S., that travel really well. They offer no support or cushioning, and they get made fun of all the time. These go in the water, no problem, they're line dryable. Sand sticks to them for a bit if you're on the beach and they're wet, but that's no big deal. These go up trails, they go over rocks, they even go up ladders, and <gasps> they go backwards. They do offer the disadvantage of strange tan lines on the feet. These are not stank leather Birkenstocks, nor are they disaster shoes, but I can walk the dog and get the mail in them. 
Flip-flops are a way to feel barefoot without actually having to feel the ground with your feet. And that's a silly trade. Feel the sand under your feet or the blades of grass between your toes if it's that mellow. If the sand is too hot, wear shoes or at least spring for the Healy strap. Sissy. Now, with a Kickstarter closing on the 15th of June, a Canadian firm will send you a belt buckle. And at least one belt. But you might want two belts. The clip, navigable at T-H-E-C-L-I-P-P dot com, itself is a minimalist wallet. But rather than slide into your pocket, it clips on like a belt buckle. So five cards and some cash behind the plate for the skinny jeans set, or maybe girls who don't want to carry a lot. I ranted last week about overstuffed wallets, and a lot of us carry less and less cash. There's a case to be made for giving yourself this limit, five cards, and just not needing a wallet. You need a belt, especially if you carry a little over six pounds in your pants. I'm looking at you, Chris. And if you're stylish, you might need two, a black and a brown belt. So, you can fund the project and get two belts for your clip, or two clips, one in black and one in silver. Now your pants don't come down when you unhook it, there's a backplate, and that buckle works with the clip. Two Ps. Just comes off with a pinch release. And because it's made of metal, it's RFID blocking. Just like last time, I don't know these people. This is just me trying to expose you guys to different gear and help the independent folks out there get some love. If you are listening to me, then you love gadgets like this, and you should subscribe if you haven't already. You can subscribe to the Pocket Dump Podcast on iTunes and through Stitcher Radio, or on the other services, you might just go to pdpc.rogintel.com and copy the RSS feed info as needed. While you're there, you can join our forum, or just leave feedback for me. If you dig this podcast, you might also like to listen to the fanboys put pop culture on trial, or you can subscribe to Rogue Intel's Prime and listen three times a week to Duff and Chris crack each other up with weird news, stories, and trivia. That's a blast. If you are as serious as a heart attack or politically minded, you need to listen to Candid with Lona Mori. She holds nothing back, and that is a great listen. Oh, the music is here! I send a shout-out to bensound.com for the music used in the pilot episode, but this week, the music is all from multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, and producer named Spencer Albee. You can all navigate to the eponymous spenceralbee.com, two E's in Albee, so S-P-E-N-C-E-R-A-L-B-E-E.com, or search for him on iTunes, just like us. Next week on the podcast, a bicycle mechanic, not a motorcycle mechanic, a bicycle mechanic is going to talk to us about what riding to work every day is like. So for those of you who already do that, more power to you. And for those of you who don't, you just don't understand. After that, we're going to have our very first law enforcement officer. And after that, a very, very special episode at episode five, where I am actually going to turn these microphones around and dump my own pockets for you guys. So hope you enjoyed this episode. I want to hear your feedback. If this is the first one you're listening to, go backwards and listen to episode one. 
and subscribe so you can listen to two, three, four, five, and the next 15 after that. You guys will all be hearing from me soon. 